You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So today is the first um, practice day of the retreat and we're going to be doing metta practice. Um, the instructions that I give for metta practice are for what's called a, a, a um, dry metta practice. In a wet metta practice, you attempt to intentionally generate feeling states that are in the kind, loving-kindness uh, sort of vein. And in a, in a dry metta practice, you don't intentionally try to cause any feeling states to arise. It's more organized around concentration. Um, <clears throat> so, metta a practice is inclining the mind toward kindness. And uh, the near enemy of, of uh, metta mind is sentimentality. One of the ways to distinguish sentimentality from the mind state of loving kindness is that you tend to get up, get caught up in the, the thoughts that generate the kindness, and that pulls you out of the present moment. So we want to establish a strong connection and presence of the present moment in the in the practice that we're doing. The other thing that's useful about practicing a, a dry metta practice is that it helps you with the exploration of mind states and the, the capacity to mentalize mind states. We want to be able to track what state the mind is in moment by moment and if you haven't done an investigation of that uh, you may not be aware that mind states exist and that they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and when the Buddha was talking about this, he described this as a mind that's equanimous and clear uh, versus a mind that's uh, affected by um, craving, aversion, and unconsciousness. But, uh, you know, you can know this as angry mind or happy mind or sad mind. And when we get into talking about the attachment stuff, knowing when the attachment mind is active and when it isn't active so that you can be skillful in addressing it. I was talking about this last night, but the traditional way of practicing um, metta is to start with the self and then move on to uh, teachers, mentors, and benefactors, and then on to uh, close people, friends and family, um, then to neutral people, then to difficult people, and then to all sentient beings. Um, we have only four days to practice metta so that we're not going to be able to do a com complete cycle of that. And we're going to practice for close people um, as a substitution for the teachers, mentors, and benefactors category. If you have teachers, mentors, and benefactors that when you think of them cause the arising of, of kindness in the mind, then you can use one of those, but often we don't have that in, in, in the way that our culture operates. Teachers, mentors, and benefactors are not necessarily highly revered uh, in our culture. Um, so 
what I would recommend you do is spend an hour on, on each person throughout the day and go through um, people that you think might be useful to you in terms of generating uh, metamind when you think of them. The reason for that is that we want to begin to develop a short list of people that reliably cause the arising of metamind or kindness in the mind so that when we're out and about in the world and we notice that the mind is headed in a, an afflictive direction, we can simply think of the, the easy person. I'm going to correct myself. I think that I said close person, but what I mean is an easy person. Close people, some, we often have complex relationships too, and so we have both kindness mind and also lots of other mind states that we tend to view them through. So what I really uh, meant to say was that we want to work with an easy person, somebody who our relationship to them is simple, and when we think of them, the mind naturally inclines toward kindness. That often is not the people that are closest to us, uh, and so we want to do this investigation of spending an hour with each person who we think might be easy and seeing whether we can reliably maintain the mind state of loving kindness as we work with them. We make the intention to radiate the loving kindness to them. In the metaphysics of Buddhist thought, the person needs to be someone we know and they need to be alive in order for them to receive the metta that we're radiating to them and then when it's received by them it's reflected back to us and that this creates a loop or a cycle of metta. Um, when I was in Asia practicing this was just simply accepted and I know that in the, the West we tend to be more more scientific or skeptical about the, the metaphysics of this kind of thing. So whenever I would bring it up um, to the Sayadaw, he would say, oh, you have one of these sharp Western minds that can't see anything. <laughs> or see what's there. Um, so some people like that aspect of it, and some people remain skeptical. It doesn't really matter. Uh, I think that what we really want to do is explore what the experience of holding uh, the mind state of kindness is, and to get good at holding it uh, for long periods of time. We, I want you to really develop so much agency that you can pull up the mind state that you want to have and keep it there as long as you want it there. When we examine the, the way that conceptual reality is created, we have the ultimate experience of sensing. So we have the six senses, uh, touch, sight, sound, uh, taste, and smell. And then we also have the activity of mind. So the activity of mind is where your attention is drawn. And then the succession of the memory of these mind moments and that string of mind moments is then fixated into conceptual reality. And the way that that happens is it, uh, it's the sensing experience itself is evaluated for the quality of the sensing, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. I like to say 
urgently needs attention, doesn't really get much attention, and pleasant if there's time. We know from neuroscience that uh, anything that's perceived as having a threat to it is processed faster. So something that's perceived as threatening requires half the intensity of, of something else and is processed uh, at three-eighths of a second, about three-eighths of a second to get into consciousness. Um, it also supersedes everything in the queue. Is that making sense? Pleasant experience takes a half a second to process through the system and end up in consciousness, and it needs twice the intensity, and that's more than twice the duration in order for it to actually get into consciousness. So the mind, who is very sensitive to, to negative experiences, can create a... a the perception that only negative experiences is happening continuously. And so one of the aspects of the metta practices is to emphasize that the positive experiences are also happening and that you can incline your mind to paying attention to those away from paying attention to the experiences that are negative. Almost all experience does not end up in consciousness. That's another thing to consider. Um, it's one of my favorite statistics, but um, the body-mind can track 11 million bits of information per second, and consciousness is 16 bits, one-six. So when I say almost everything ends up in the neutral category, I mean 10 million, 900 and such on thousand ends up in the neutral category and never really makes it into consciousness. Uh, part of this investigation, of course, is to begin to understand that consciousness is uh, the veto aspect of experience and almost everything else is unconscious. So part of this uh, process of uh, investigating is to see that we are engaged in this activity uh, of being and we have this little window to monitor it. But the origin of all of that does not come from the window. It is simply the end of the process. If we can use a computer metaphor, it's a, the printer. After everything has been processed and finished, it's sent to the printer at the last moment for a review. And what you'll notice is that you're engaged in the activity just as it's hitting the printer and you have the opportunity to stop stop yourself from doing it, but you don't really originate uh, the intention to do it, that happens in this process of ultimate reality being compared to the procedural or perceptual database. And then when you find a close enough match, this is all unconscious, the sensing experience is matched to the data entry in, in the perceptual uh, database, and then it's fixated into conceptual reality. So what we want to be able to do is to begin to affect the way that that conditioning has just happened to us so that we have more agency in, in, in uh, creating the kind of uh, experience that we want. And so the reason that meditation is so good at, at this is it works in procedural memory. 
And so this exploration of what a mind state is uh, and to be able to see it in consciousness uh, if you don't already have the skill is something that you need to learn. If you had sensitive enough caregivers, you will already know how to do this and if you didn't have that then you won't be able to do it and so this will be something that you need to learn to do. Um, and the practice of a dry metta is really good at this because what it's requiring you to do is investigate what the mind state is and then make the mind state itself the object of meditation rather than to rely on uh, phrases or a narrative to produce a feeling state. The other advantage of doing the dry practice is that once you have agency in recognizing what mind states are and, con and, and some agency in um, um, controlling which mind state you have, you can then view any experience through the mind state and begin to notice that mind states distort experiences and that you can, ex you can distort experiences in both beneficial ways and in, in afflictive ways. This will be very useful later when we get into the Vipassana practice because we'll want to see how your conditioning affects the perception of your experience and in understanding that be able to incline the mind in more beneficial ways of being. We don't really ever uh, get rid of our conditioning. I was talking to, to Jules about this yesterday. So we're not trying to eradicate or eliminate anything. What we're trying to do is add to it ways of being with it that allow us to have a, a more skillful capacity in the present moment. Uh, the things that happened to you happened to you. The things that you got, you got. The things that you didn't get, you didn't get. And there's no way to change any of that. Nothing that you do now will go, will take you back into the past and, and uh, fulfill deficits or replace bad experiences or take away uh, good experiences. But we do want to be able to see clearly what our conditioning has been and how that causes us to react in the present moment in a way that in that is informed by that conditioning. The pure sensing experience is totally unfixated and in just raw data and then it's evaluated for pleasant, unpleasant or neutral and then it's compared to the database of previous experiences and if there's a close enough match the meaning of the previous experience uh, becomes the present moment experience. And if you don't have good clarity about that you can slip out of the present moment into thought and then you lose the potentiality of the present moment because you're restricted to the experiences that are already in the database. Um, this is a very typical reaction that people have. They identify the present moment as having the same categorical qualities as things that, are in, that have happened in the past but then suddenly we're limited only to the things that happened in the past out of all of the potential of the present moment. 
and when we create conceptual reality, we don't include the potentialities of the present moment that haven't already been included in the database of the past. Is that making sense? And so here we really do want to be able to push into and be in the experience of the present moment so that when we create conceptual reality out of the sensing experience, all of the potentiality of the present moment is included in the way that we construct conceptual reality. Um, sometimes it's, uh, people say, uh, live uh, the present moment as if it's a dream. And they say that because you're making it up. And, um, and I, what I really want you to get used to is this movement of touching into conceptual reality, touching into ultimate reality, and then touching into conceptual reality so that you're constantly monitoring how you've made conceptual reality out of the, the raw data. Because if you get too locked into conceptual reality, you begin to think that it, it is the thing and lose track of the, the, the possibility of slipping out of the present moment experience into thinking or into the, to the past. So with m practicing dry metta in this way, you're constantly monitoring the mind state and then making that an object. In wet metta, we tend to be in the body looking for the positive feeling state that we're, in, we're generating through thinking, and so the meditation is down in the body. But in dry metta, the meditation is up in the head. So uh, it's also meant as a high concentration practice. Um, in concentration practice, particularly on the first day or two of a retreat, you may notice it's hard to get into a highly concentrated mind, which is perfectly ordinary. Um, and so there's a lot of coming back to the meditation, coming back to the object. Most people will find the sensation of the mind state somewhere in the, in the front part of the head. I don't know why this is really. Maybe it's just the way that we tend to think of our, our, uh, our center or, uh, of thought being up here. But um, auditory and visual thinking are the way that we know thought, and the felt sense of emotion in the body is the way that we know the body. And so we're pulling up into awareness of the mind state, which is going to be somewhere inside the head. So we place and sustain our attention um, to the mind state. Um, in the beginning, if you haven't tried to track mind state, this is going to be an amorphous, 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 Amorphous. Um, investigation. And then um, when you find it and hold your attention there, or even hold your attention there without necessarily pinpointing it, uh, and you're able to concentrate well enough, the, uh, all of the extraneous experience will drop away and the experience of the mindset itself will intensify. And uh, as it does, you may notice it energizes. This is the arising of PT is the Pali word for this, or rapture is the English word that's most often associated. So an energy 
forms around it. And that makes it much easier to hold as an object of meditation because it's easier to detect. But that really comes from the arising of concentration around the object. And then what begins to overtake the body is a pleasantness, a bliss experience. It's called sukha in Pali. And uh, so that intense uh, pleasant feeling or blissful feeling that you tend to think of metta causing to arise, arises from the concentration practice and can easily be much more intense than what you would be able to generate through thinking. Metta mind is always thought of as uh, cool, and what we mean by that is that there's an absence of the heat of craving, there's an absence of the heat of aversion, and there's an absence of unconsciousness. You're able to hold the mind state. And so, it is an I if you grew up in my family system the word kindness um, actually wasn't in currency much and so curiosity would be a better word so uh, with all of these translations of Pali terms you have to understand them by experiencing the state and then understanding how you would in your family system or in your lexicon describe it I would uh, describe metta mind as an open-hearted curiosity more than I would as a kindness. But kindness is also a good word. We're inclining the mind and we're being open to engaging in the experience of ourselves without judgment or with the experience of someone else without judgment. we get uh, with close people really engaged with them and so sometimes it's hard to open up to just allowing them to be who they are and being open and curious to what that experience is without wanting it to be something that we want from them. Um, With neutral people sometimes it's hard for us even to engage with them because um, they're not that interesting to us. We don't want to use our attention for them. And then that can be reflected to in the experience of the other person as a coldness or a disconnection. And so we want to be able to create this capacity to hold this mind state and engage everyone that we encounter. Often with difficult people, anger arises and that is the far enemy of, of uh, loving kindness. Um, there are four Brahma-viharas, uh, Loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, uh, metta, karuna, mudita, and uh, upekka are the Pali words. And they really work in concert to each other. In the Theravada way of teaching, we start with metta. And in the Tibetan way of teaching, they start with upekka, or equanimity. And in the Tibetan way of teaching, equanimity underlies all of it and the others are built from it. And in the Theravada way, it's added at the end that you want to stay within a range of equanimity so that you can hold the spaces. Um, In metta jhana practice, there are three levels of jhana that you can attain uh, in 
Vipassana jhana, there are eight levels of jhana. And the reason that there are only three levels in metta jhana is that the mind is always inclined toward kindness. And in Vipassana jhana, equanimity is the fourth stage uh, depending. There's the canonical instruction and there's also the Vasudhimaga instruction. Uh, I am giving you the instruction from the Vasudhimaga, not from the canon. In the first metta jhana, you place and sustain your attention. Um, you'll notice that as you, you're able to maintain awareness of the object, that it intensifies uh, and the mind becomes enraptured in it. And in holding that, uh, a bliss or a pleasantness arises in the body and then the mind settles into one-pointedness. The first metajana is quite unstable, so you may hold it for two or three seconds or 10 or 12 seconds or 20 seconds or a minute or two, and then you pop out, and then you have to reset the practice. So you make the intention to radiate the metta to someone. Uh, You'll need to decide whether your visual thinking capacity is, is ordinary and strong enough that visual imagery could distract you from the meditation and then you hold a visual image of the person if that's the case. And if you don't need to do that, don't, because it divides the object of meditation. We're not attempting to generate any particular feeling state in the body. The object of meditation is the mind state, and so we uh, look for the mind state. When we find it, we place and sustain our awareness of it. So in Pali, uh, Vitaka is placing, Vikara is maintaining, Uh, PT is the energetic quality that arises as you find the object. Sukha is the blissfulness that overtakes the body. And Ekagata is the one-pointedness. As you move into the second metta jhana, the body-mind settles into the one-pointedness so that you no longer have to effort to place and sustain. You can abide in the object meditation for long periods of time, say, 20 or 30 minutes, something like that, or, or longer. Um, and you have the, the rapture, the piti, the energy of it, the blissfulness of it, and the, the one-pointedness. But after a while, the, the, energetic of it, the energetics of it becomes too coarse, and the mind settles into the third jhana, which is really just bliss and a one-pointedness. And that that um, is a very intense, intensely blissful experience. But what you may notice is that your mind doesn't settle and, and you're walking around and you can't find the, the object of meditation and you're just irritable and stomping around and that, that doesn't really feel or look like metta mind. <laughs> Nonetheless, persist until you've until you're able to find it. In the uh, formal sitting practice, it is a contractive uh, uh, practice where we're narrowing down to a a one-pointed relationship to the practice. 
Um, but we want to contrast that or balance that with an expansive practice. And so in this way of practicing uh, metta, walking metta practice is the expansive side. And walking metta is done for all sentient beings, not for someone in particular. And you want to expand outward and not allow the mind to contract around any particular individual, but continue this outward expansive practice for all sentient beings. I'm going to demonstrate walking metta. So in walking metta, it's a kind of just strolling. So you're just really just flowing and moving. Um, And there's a couple of ways to practice. You could set two points and just move back and forth between them. Um, I, uh, the way that I like to practice is uh, in, a, in a large circle. So I'm never actually really stopping. I'm just continuously walking and I tend to move at a more slowing, flowing kind of pace. And, um, and I connect the, the phrases to, to the, the steps. So the, the phrase is, may you be peaceful, so may you be peaceful, may you be peaceful, may you be peaceful. When you're doing it in walking meditations, may all beings be peaceful, may all beings be peaceful, may all beings be peaceful. Um, I tend to be more uh, liking rhythmic, well, rhythmic way of practicing rather than just uh, saying the phrases, but you, you can do either. In uh, wet metta, uh, we tend to use some kind of phrase that has a narrative quality to it, that has an emotional uh, aspect to it that generates the, the sense of loving-kindness. And in dry metta practice, we, want, we tend to use very sh- short and concise phrases. Uh, so, um, you may remember uh, the, the way that Sharon Salzberg described what meta practice was was a typically f- four phrases that are used in the, in the series. Um, the problem with uh, phrasing the practice like that when you're trying to get into high concentration states is that having to remember the sequence of the phrases tends to divide the object of meditation and it makes it harder to get into a high concentration state. And so we tend to use very clipped phrases. The phrase that the Sayadaw uh, uses is um, may I be peaceful, may you be peaceful, or may all beings be peaceful. It's very short. Um, I've spent untold minutes discussing with people the the nuance of, of phrases and um, <clears throat> well, what if what if I have a terminal illness? How can I really say, may I be well? You know uh, that that sort of thing. And so um, it really is to engage auditory thinking space so auditory thoughts don't come in and hijack the meditation and to remind you 
of the practice that you're undertaking because when you get into high concentration states and you pop out, it can be uh, a little disorienting sometimes. And then you have to recollect a sense of self to figure out what you were doing and that if you're just generating the phrase, you're reminded immediately of what you're doing. It does help to be able to intend the meaning of the phrase, um, but, but I quite like the, the peaceful phrase, so that's the one that I recommend. Is that making sense? Mm-hmm. Can I make a statement? You can. <laughs> no questions, right? Correct. Uh, I guess from my experience with it, I would think that walking meditation, it's harder to get into high concentration walking. <coughs> um, the uh, you're you're correct about that, but what the balance may be is that the contractive energy uh, is not producing concentration, but it's producing uh, sleepiness, or it's producing a kind of agitation, and so that you would want to balance the, the sleepiness by using the walking meditation to energize the body mind so that it's more awake in practicing, or if if your mind and body is restless and agitated to use the walking meditation to burn up the energy so that you can come back into a middle place. Remember that you can also use breathing to help with this. If the body-mind is really agitated and restless, you can extend the out-breath. That will engage the parasympathetic nervous system and shut down the agitation. If the body-mind is sleepy, you can uh, extend the in-breath. That will engage the the sympathetic nervous system and activate the body-mind. But when you're doing it in uh, in the meditation hall, you want to do it in such a way that it's not audible. Is that making sense? No pranayama in... Any other statements? Ultimate reality is the, the just un, unfixated flow of sensing, and conceptual reality is the, the thing you make it into. <clears throat> and so I tend to use the metaphor rocking. You rock into the ultimate reality and then into the conceptual reality, and you're just constantly moving back and forth. As you do that, it begins to reveal the mind state that's in between the two. Uh, and you can see, oh, there's angry mind, and so conceptual reality is completely infused with anger, even though the sensing experience is not. Or the metta mind is there, and then you see that, oh, conceptual reality is completely infused with kindness, even though the sensing experience is not. There are certain advantages to this, um, and I, you know, I, I do like to have things testable. Uh, you may have heard me say this before, but uh, if you if if you incline the mind toward kindness, the way that you respond to everybody that you experience is very different than if the mind is inclined toward anger. And if you don't um, believe that, um, the next time you're back uh, in the world, all morning long, just snarl at everybody you see, just grimace at them and look at them like they're nothing. And then uh, in the afternoon, smile at everybody and, and be warm to everybody and see if the world doesn't respond in a different way based on that energy that comes out. 
we know that um, metamind is distorting the creation of conceptual reality, but it does it in a way that's beneficial to us, and uh, uh, so that it isn't that you don't that you always want to be equanimous. Many people experience somebody who's totally equanimous as uh, cold and cut off, which is uh, maybe not the most skillful. And as you, as you learn to moderate your practice when you're on your own, you can move the mind toward total equanimity and just move through the world that way. But that when you're with other people, it's often more skillful to intentionally generate metta in the mind so that people find you engaged with them and connected to them. Um, but the part of this as you as you begin to progress in your spiritual development um, and I'm going to talk about this and we'll go more deeply into this is around the mentalizing aspect to be actively mentalizing in every moment that is to say uh, the first, the basic level of understanding of other people is that you understand that you have a mind, a mind state and that they have a mind state and that they're different. And that they don't need, other people don't need to have the same mind state that you have. They can have their own. That's the first level. The second level is to be constantly evaluating whether or not your, your mind state or your, the, the, conceptual reality that you've created is accurate and that that's that constant rocking back and forth this is what I've made and this is what I've made it out of is that what I've made an accurate reflection of what's happening the Buddha described this as um, the the experience our experience being ref a reflection of the body the activity of the body mind and uh, that it depending on the mind state, can be an accurate reflection or it can be a distorted reflection. And he used the metaphor of a mirror, which 2,600 years ago was a, a bowl with a dark glaze on it filled with water. And so from the sensing experience reflected on the surface of the bowl, if the mind is uh, equanimous or the water is clear and still, you get a pretty accurate reflection of the experience that you're having in the way that human beings experience it, not in the way that it is, right? We have a, a fairly limited capacity. This is the spectrum of sound, this is what we can hear. This is the spectrum of light, this is the uh, spectrum of light that we can see. This is the spectrum of temperature, this is the spectrum of temperature that we can exist in. So we get this little sliver and then, of course, we assign all of the meaning, meaning to it. So really understanding that your capacity to understand is based on your database of conditioning. And that if it isn't in the database of conditioning, your mind can't resolve it into anything. Um, one way to test that is to use exterior sound and listen to the soundscape and, and notice whether the, the mind knows what it is or doesn't know what it is. If, uh, because it takes a half a second to get into the mind, most of the time the body-mind has been able to identify it and it becomes that and so it, as it enters consciousness, 
it's already conceptualized. It's already solid. It's only when you hear something that you don't know what it is for longer than a half a second that it will enter consciousness and not be fixated and you'll be able to watch the activity of the mind trying to identify and solidify that experience so you can have a direct awareness of it. Um, and this is true of all senses. If you're looking around this room and everybody is solid and the floor is solid and the ceiling is solid and everybody's been assigned to sex um, based on their external presentation, then you are in conceptual reality. You're not in uh, this, the ultimate reality of sensing. And you've made it up. Some people are more interesting and less interesting, more attractive or less attractive based not on the person in front of you, but based on your database of conditioning, right? So that second level is noticing the uh, accuracy. The third level is to understand that other people's mind states and reactions do have an effect on you and that you have an effect on them and that you can track that. So when you get into that, that level of mentalizing, uh, you're doing what the Buddha called mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, and mindfulness of inside and outside. Mindfulness of inside is your experience, mindfulness of outside is the other person, and that you're able to track that. Somebody does something and you react to it, and then that reaction is transmitted to the other person, and then they react to that, and you're in a constant cycle of reacting with the other person. If you get caught up in conceptual reality, then it becomes a solid, real thing that they're doing to you, when in fact, most of the time, it's their uh, conditioning that they haven't been able to track very well, and it, it may not be pointedly um, constructed to be a, an arrow uh, shot at you. Is that making sense? Have you ever had the experience of getting something wrong? <laughs> but I immediately corrected that, and that was fine. <laughs> um, the next one is to understand that um, you have an agenda, and other people have an agenda, and they don't need to be the same agenda. Um, in, in childhood, um, around 18 months, the, the, the brain develops enough for a child to recognize that there's another person that comes, that it's not them that comes to take care of them. And that the other person has a different agenda than they have, and that they can have their own agenda. And if that's encouraged and nurtured in childhood, then you really have a sense of that. And if it isn't, uh, it's more difficult to do. But that your agenda can be operational and the other person's agenda can be operational and you can still be in relationship to them. And it still can be collaborative. And then the last one is, how do you make meaning out of your experience? Can you tell the difference between activities that have meaning to you and activities that don't have meaning to you? And can you orient your life in a way that you spend more time engaged in the meaningful activities than you do 
in the activities that are necessary for your survival. Um, and that's, that's the progress of spiritual development, the basic beginning part of, of, of spiritual development. And in particular, we should pay attention to meaning. Uh, we often end up in, in uh, places in our lives where, where we're in despair because of the lack of meaning that we find in, in the things that we do. And, um, and so somewhere along the lines, we need to turn toward exploration and to uh, uh, understand our relationship to it. Um, but as these things come up in, in the practice, with the orientation of loving-kindness, we can hold ourselves in a kind place as we do the, these investigations, and then it's much easier for us to do them than if the critical judgmental mind uh, takes over and, and, uh, uh, and we engage in a, a process of self-attack because our conditioning has distorted our capacity to make meaning for ourselves. Is that making sense? So the, the reason that we spend the first part of the retreat just doing metta is so that we really settle into a concentrated, kind mind, so that when we open up <coughs> the vipassana side, we can begin to explore our conditioning uh, in such a way that we remain in that, that place of kindness for ourselves which it makes, makes it much easier to explore what's actually happening and, and how that uh, changes the, the, the way that we choose the things that we choose to engage in. Um, <clears throat> so I think the first interviews are at 10.40. The first interview is at 10.40. So we'll stop now and then um, um, come to your interview and then practice. Is everybody clear about the instruction for the metta practice? Do you want me? Mm? I'm a little confused on when to visualize and when to use auditory. Okay, let me do a quick guidance to settle you into the practice so you have a sense of it. So just close your eyes and quickly settle into the body. In meta meditation, there's no need to hold the posture still. You want it to be in a relaxed and comfortable position. It's okay to move. Normally, I would do a quick in inventory. So just move through the body rather quickly, touching the, the top of the head, the brow, the face, the jaw, relaxing the tongue, moving the head forward and backwards, releasing any tension in the neck, um, moving the shoulders up and down, releasing any tension that might be there. Just following the spine downward. If you notice any tension, seeing if you can release it into the hips, into the legs, into the feet. Begin by making the intention to radiate the loving kindness to a specific person. 
We're working with the easy list today, so let the mind go and see who you might practice for, and then choose one person to practice uh, for an hour with. Doesn't matter whether you can find the mind state of uh, loving kindness with them or not, you're trying to evaluate whether in thinking of them the mind state of loving kindness arises and whether you can sustain that. And we want to thoroughly investigate the people that we know so that we can develop a short list of easy people that we can use to reliably generate the mind state of loving kindness. So the first piece is to make the intention to radiate the loving kindness to a specific person. The second is to evaluate whether the, the visual thinking uh, space is active or not and whether it's useful to hold an image of the person to still visual thinking. Visual thinking for many people is quite subtle and so it doesn't tend to be too distracting, but for some people it's, it is distracting and so then it's important to hold that feeling state. We're not attempting to generate any feeling state in the body. Whatever happens there is fine. We're pulling our attention upward into the head, looking for the, the experience of the mind state there. So placing and sustaining awareness of the mind state of loving kindness. And then continuously generating your phrase and auditory thinking. May you be peaceful, may you be peaceful, may you be peaceful. May you be peaceful, may you be peaceful, may you be peaceful. May you be peaceful, may you be peaceful, may you be peaceful. May you be peaceful, may you be peaceful, may you be peaceful. Continuously repeating the phrase while maintaining awareness of the mind state. 